1: a systematic theology you're going to have uh, a human instrument that is devised obviously by men which no matter how thorough and hopefully as objective as they try to be in exegeting scripture is going to bring some presuppositions to it and then you'll almost always have another systematic theology that will disagree somewhat with it so the classic example of course is Calvinism versus Arminianism um, in our day and time. Earlier it was Augustinianism and Pelagianism. We read from the book of Revelation tonight, 19. Does anybody know why we read from that tonight? The bride bride and the marriage of the lamb. We're going to refer to that tonight. Uh, In Revelation... Boy, is there any controversy about the theology of Revelation? Yeah. Is there any agreement? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is. John wrote it, and it came from Christ. No, I'm being facetious, but, uh, yeah. So was I. Yeah, I know. Pre, post, ah, uh, you know, uh, some say pan, it'll all pan out, that sort of thing, but. Well, tonight we have a similar sort of situation. The background is uh, when we look at the view of marriage and uh, the roles of men and women, and the church and the roles of men and women, there are two camps, there are probably more than that, but they're, they're divided into complementarians and egalitarians. Um, those are the most dominant uh, two streams. Um, and so I want to talk about that for just a moment. But also to say this, when we go into this series about cultural apologetics a little bit later, we're going to deal with the same thing. There will be two widely variant views about almost any issue that we talk about. And often what we find is, if we're driven by the system, we sometimes come to the scripture with those presuppositions and we don't examine them objectively. It's better to come to the scripture first and then look at the systems and see, you know, okay, what are the... Where, where do they seem to be biblical and where do they not seem to be as biblical as we would, we would wish? So we're going to deal with that when we talk about these cultural issues. Tonight, I want to talk about these two approaches to male and female roles first. Uh, they have a common ground. Uh, they both believe this, that men and women are both created in the image of God and have dignity and are of equal value to God. Uh, They're equal in their personhood. So that's a beginning point that they agree upon. And oh, by the way, I'm one of those people that believe that Calvinism and Arminianism aren't really all that far apart. (laughs) Because Arminius was a good Calvinist before he became an Arminian, you know. Uh, When you look at the spectrum of theology in the the 17th and 18th century out of which they were born and, uh, and systematized, and you look at the other options, they're a lot further apart. And it's sort of that way with complementarians and egalitarians. There are a lot of evangelicals that ho- hold either position, a lot of Baptists that hold either position, and um, they, they all agree uh, at the beginning that, that, that men and women are equal in uh, their personhood before God, equal dignity and value. Uh, the complementarians believe that uh, men and women complement each other. You could use a lot of analogies, it's sort of like a wonderful kaleidoscope of color and a wonderful painting where different colors are used then to to make the whole picture and make it more beautiful. You might look at it sort of like a jigsaw puzzle, you know, the man is the jig and the woman is the saw, they fit together, that sort of thing, they complement each other. But complementarians essentially say this, that each gender uh, complements the other. Uh, to make marriage richer and any social relationship richer, but they're complementing each other. Uh, there are meaningful distinctions between genders, and it's not to say that the other position doesn't agree with that, but there are meaningful distinctions not only in the genders, but in the roles that those genders by God was assigned to fulfill. So essentially there are certain roles that women are better at and God designed for, and men are better at and God designed for. For the well-being of both when they come together. They complement each other. They say, uh, most of them, that in the church that only men should be in leadership roles over pos- over men. It's not that women don't have leadership roles, but women should not be in a leadership role over men. And of course, as you well know, the complementarian position and the 2000 Baptist faith and messages expressed in the article on the... Uh, church where it says that the uh, pastor, they don't say senior, but the pastor of a church must be a male as determined by scripture, because the pastor has authority, if you will, use that term, I, I use it advisedly, over men. Complementarians say that women can't hold positions, but that they ought to be positions where they're ministering to women. Complementarians believe in a patriarchal view of the family. And by that, they mean that the father, the husband, is the head of the family. Complementarians say that husbands should love their wives. And there, they agree with the egalitarians. But they also say that wives should submit to their husbands as Christ, as the church submits to Christ. And we're going to look at that tonight. Egalitarians, their focus is uh, more on equality, that there there must be human equality in all kinds of relationships, religious, political, social, economic affairs. Men and women are equal. Uh, and they seek to remove any kind of inequalities between the genders, and they don't consign certain roles to men and certain roles to women. They said that Jesus abolished those roles, those role identities, as he also did when he abolished distinction of roles for races or distinction of roles for classes, upper middle, lower class, that sort of thing, uh, egalitarians say that both men and women should be able to hold church leadership positions, and it regardless of whether or not they have authority over men or women or whom they are quote over <laughs> egalitarians say that spouses are equally responsible for the family that uh, they 're both responsible to God, equally in the side of God. Marriage is a partnership, and uh, they are two equals that are submitting to one another, not the the wife to the husband. And that roles should be based on ability, skill, gifts, experience. That roles should not be identified as gender-based. So that's that's all I'm gonna say about those two positions, except to say this, they both come from scripture. Uh, some look at certain scriptures more than others, but it's sort of like the Calvinist and the Arminian. Uh, you're not gonna find any folks that were more steeped in scripture when they were arguing against Calvinists than the Arminians, and vice versa. It depends on how you interpret those scriptures and how you use them, so. So where are we now? We're in Ephesians. We have um, come to the point where we talked about the identity of the, uh, of the church and our identity in Christ to begin with. There were eight messages on that. Then we talked about masterpieces in the making. There were three, five messages on that. Then equipping for ministry. And then we just finished a block, walking worthily or walk worthy. It depends on whether you want to be adverbial or adjectival. Uh, And the last of those messages Mark delivered last week on walking carefully, filled with the Spirit, we talked about walking in a worthy manner, we're called to holiness, we are to cultivate holiness, that we are to walk in three ways, in purity, and as children of the light, and then finally, last week, to walk carefully, filled with the Spirit. Tonight we began, as Joel said, a series on godly homes, and we're going to be looking at that in three messages. Tonight, godly. Husbands and wives. Next message, Joel will be talking about godly parents, that is, parents and children, and then godly servants and masters in the same household. So here's the text. I'm beginning with verse 21, which was the last verse that Mark covered in his, uh, in his message last week, which I thought was very appropriate. It, uh, it finishes out the participial uh, ideas that are related to walking in the Spirit. And so I'm glad he did that. There are a number of participles that say, walk in the Spirit and you do it by doing these things. And the last of those was submitting one to another. At the same time, it's a stitched kind of uh, transitional verse that leads right into the next passage. Okay? It leads into this passage uh, that typically when you see your Bible paragraph, it begins with verse 22. I've told you this before, but Beverly and her wedding band that... uh, is now fifty years old on the inside, and you can still read it. It's inscribed. It's Ephesians five, and it begins. I had no idea what I was doing when I did this, <laughs> but it's Ephesians five twenty-one through thirty-three. I'm glad I did that because I think that that's I think that's a a, a better description of what Paul's talking about here about marriage. So, verse number twenty-one, going through the end of the. Uh, uh, the passage 33 and submitting one to another in the fear of Christ wives to your own husbands hear me okay Uh, wives to your own let's get the other mic I know this is going to go out you notice I left out be subject to well that's implied it draws the verb from the previous uh, The previous verse. So wives, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Why? For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we're members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. By way of background, I would remind us there are a number of concerns that Paul has had throughout this letter about their not returning to their old ways, their pagan ways is one of them. But one of the main themes, obviously, is unity. And he continues with that idea here. Walking in unity as a diverse body. And here, he continues the idea. Jay, we're, we're getting a little bit of feedback. Can we turn that back, please? Uh, here he's, talking, he's continuing the idea of walking worthily, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. It, it's a new block of material dealing with the godly family, but he continues the idea of walking in the spirit and walking worth, worthily, filled with the spirit, and he's concerned about that. Why is it a continuation? Because the imperative that drives this passage is not found in verse 21 or verse number 22. It's found in verse number 18, which Mark covered last week. The imperative is, and do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be what? Be filled with the Spirit. That is the imperative verb. And you don't run into another verb until we then come to verse number 24, I think it is. You see, all that comes after this are participles that support that verb, verses 19 through 21. And I'm not going to re-preach Mark's sermon, but just to review what he said. We're to walk in the spirit by doing what? By speaking uh, to one another in a certain way in verse 19, by singing and making melody in verse number 19, always giving thanks for all things in verse number 20, and then in verse 21, submitting to one another. So it continues that idea. The next verb is not until verse number 24, and that is where as the church is submitting to Christ, and that's not a participle, that's a, an imperfect, that that's a, 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 is a, 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 a present indicative. They are in the process of submitting. That, that's the next verb. We haven't gotten there yet. The next imperative doesn't come until verse number 25. And guess who it is, to whom it is given? You don't have to guess, you look at verse number 25, to whom is the next imperative given? Husbands. And Paul says, do what? Love your wives. So this is a continuation of the idea that Mark began last week. In other words, you know, the, 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 the family and all of these things about the family are based on all of us walking in the spirit, not only in the body, but walking in the spirit in the family as well. You see, this is one of several household codes for holy living. Uh, the, the clearest one that is almost identically parallel to it is found in Colossians, the third chapter. In, in both of these passages, it goes through the same pattern. Husbands and wives, then parents and children, and then slaves and masters. And of course, the translation of that, I'm not gonna steal um, thunder here, two sermons from now, but this, the slaves, servants, that's almost parallel to the work workforce. We ought, employees ought to be subject to their, obey their, their uh, employers. Uh, an, another parallel text, though, is Titus 2, 1 through 10. And it, it, it's almost, almost mirrors it. Then there are a couple of other passages that are broader in their explanation about what ought to happen in the family. It's not as precise and as succinct as these codes. 1 Timothy 2, right before he then talks about the role of bishops and deacons, he talks about the family in 1 Timothy 2. Paul does again. And then Peter does it in 1 Peter two, thirteen through 3, 7. So there are a number of these household codes. There then, how does the house operate? And that is... The the husband and wife, the parents and the children, and then the slaves were members of the household, weren't they? He's talking about household slaves here then, being obedient to their masters. Uh, The outline of this passage, I'm going to make five points. First of all, mutual submission. We're in in the wedding, in the marriage, I believe it's saying we're mutually to submit. And that would run a little against the strain of what some of the complementarians would say, frankly okay? Husbands taking the lead, and then that has a flavor of the uh, uh, complementarian to it. I think you're going to see that I'm kind of, I've got one foot sort of in either camp. That shouldn't surprise you. Uh, this, the next point, oh, by the way, in all of this, you know what, folks, the, the Lord gives us permission to do what? To disagree, yeah, and and sometimes we do. You may not agree with everything I'm saying tonight, uh, and I hope that you do, sort of like the Bereans. You examine what I say and look at scripture and you come to your determination about what you believe is being said for your family. Not because it's subjective, but based on the way the Holy Spirit has you interpret it, based on good exegesis. Secondly, I think obviously husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, that's obvious. Thirdly, husbands love your wives as you love your own bodies, that's pretty obvious. The next one, uh, what about this great mystery? I'm gonna put it this way. We partake of Christ's mysterious, this great mystery of Christ, his mysterious union with the church. Husbands participate in it, wives participate in it, families participate in this great mystery of Christ's union with the church. And what is that union like? And then finally, the, the last couple of the last verse, we build strong marriages on the basis of the person of Christ, of course, but uh, on love and respect. So let's take a look at the first of those two. mutually submit. Mutually submit. Husbands taking the lead and and I think it's to me it's pretty obvious since there's not a verb there in verse number 22, it borrows the verb from number 21. It says wives to your husbands, well where does the verb come from? It comes from the previous participle, submitting to one another, based on that participle. I think what this is saying is the basic relationship, it's, it, it's talking earlier about the basic relationship of everybody in the church. Everybody in the church is walking in the spirit, and everybody in the church is mutually submitting one to another respectfully, sort of like what Philippians says about letting our moderation be known to all people. We have a yielding kind of spirit, and we cooperate together in chapter four of Philippians. So it's an extension of that. Already, we're members of the same body and we're mutually submitting. The body is unified in speaking and singing and giving thanks and submitting to one another. Now, if we're all equal in God's sight in the body, and we are, and we have equal dignity and access and accountability before God in the body, I think it applies in marriage as well. Each person's a part of the body. Each of us has equal access to God through our high priest, Jesus Christ. Each of us is equally, equally dignified in the image of God, and we're each individually and, and uh, personally accountable to God in terms of our conscience. No one is sovereign over your conscience except Jesus Christ. That's a very important principle. Also, the basic relationship, I think is, he's implying here, exists in the family, in the, in the husband-wife relationship. You see, if we're already parts of the body as church members, And I'm not gonna get into the issue of being unequally yoked now. Assuming that the husband and the wife are are both members of the body of Christ, you're already in mutual submission to one another. There's no verb in verse number 22 that defines the wife's relationship to her husband there. It comes a little bit later. (laughs) And it's supplied in verse 21. So I think the idea of at least something about marriage, the wife and the husband are mutually submissive. Well, what does submission mean? It's not obedience, and I'm not saying that this gives anybody in the marriage to be disobedient, but submission is not purely obedience. Obedience is drawn from the word to hear. It's hipakuo it means to stand under the voice of, and the idea is you listen to a command and you obey the command. Obedience is involuntary. Obedience is based on either some kind of um, positional authority that someone has over somebody else, or some kind of uh, organic relationship. Organic relationship. Children are born of parents, and children are commanded, aren't they? We will see a little bit later, next week. Children are commanded to do what? Obey their parents. So there clearly is that kind of authority that is organic there. There's usually some kind of contractual or organic relationship that issues itself in, in terms of command to be obeyed. Children obey your parents, that's organic. Slaves obey your masters, that's contractual. But marriage is not a contract. We've said that before. Marriage is a what? It's a covenant, and that's different. Submission is based on the uh, word hupotasso. it means to stand under. It comes from a Greek military term. They would organize their army with leaders that were over the troops in that respect, and they organized the troops in that way under the leader to, to follow the leader. I believe this about the military. A lot of folks don't agree with me about this. I think a leader who tries to assert his authority only because he is over the troops usually proves not to be the best leader. Oh yeah, he has that positional authority, but they follow the leader instead of coming under the leader when they go into battle. Hmm. He sets the example. When you apply it to a, civil, a civilian application in Greek culture, it, it, it meant this. It was a voluntary attitude of yielding for greater purpose. It's more of a covenantal relationship. And the emphasis here in the civilian context using this word submission was, it's a cooperation between parties in a covenant, assuming that both parties assume responsibility And both parties carry part of the burden, it's mutual. It's not a hierarchical structure, it is a functional relationship. In submission, we cooperate together. In mutual submission, we cooperate together. And in that relationship, we follow the lead of the person that is gifted in that area of responsibility. We defer to those in the relationship that are more gifted and are more expert in that area. So frankly, in the complementarian view, if you assign a role to a gender, you see, it doesn't quite fit this because somebody of a gender might have certain gifts and experiences and abilities that don't typically follow a male role or a female role. In a uh, mutual submission, we defer then to those that have um, had those gifts and experience. So Beverly is a whole lot better at a lot of things than I am. Now, Frankly, a lot of those things are roles that we would probably typically associate with a female with a wifely role. But she's a whole lot better at some things and takes the lead in our marriage. And we, we do have a mutually submissive marriage in that respect. I'm better at other things, not as many as she is. But see, that's based on experience and our understanding of the gifts that God's given each one of us. Well, it's sort of that way in the church. Isn't it? Which gift is more important in the church? Are all the gifts necessary? Yes. And do you assign gifts in the church based on gender? No. Some would say, oh, yeah, but you can't have uh, in Ephesians 4th chapter, you can't have pastor teachers who are women. So you see you run into a little difficulty there. But I said husband's taking the lead. Okay. What What do I mean by that, the way I look at it? You see, Christ is the model for the husband, and the church is the model for the wife. Christ is the model for the husband because uh, it says that he is the head of the church and the savior of the body, and the word that is used there is is kephalē, the word head. Well, the word head can be a couple of things. It can mean the capital thing up here. It can mean the thing that the neck turns. You know the old joke, you know, the, the man is the head of the house, but the wife is the neck. <laughs> But it's, it's the head, it's the decision maker, it, it's the supreme, it's the top, it's the capital. And that's the way we usually read it. But also, what about the head of the river? Same idea. What is the head of the river? It's the source. So Christ is both of those things. And that word was used that way in Greek. It was used as the top dog, the authority, you see, but it was also as the source. Christ fulfills both of those definitions. He is the head of the church authoritatively. Overall, Ephesians 1, he's over all creation and is given to the church, and therefore he is over the church. He is the head of the body, and the body is the church. But he is also the source of the church. Out of him, the church has come. And he is the divine agent on behalf of the Father that is responsible for the church as the savior of the body. What does that mean? To deliver, protect, and preserve the church. Okay, so, so that's the model that we look at then when we look at the husband. In a similar, but I'm going to say not identical manner, in a similar manner, the husband is also the leader of the household. And I believe that. I believe that he is Christ's representative on earth in the family. It's a similar sort of headship as to Christ, but it's not identical. I believe here what is really emphasized is that he is the source. After all, it was out of Adam that Eve came. In that respect, the female comes out of the mail, and he is the source. The husband, many, in many ways, does what Christ does as Savior, but not all. The husband is not the supreme, I believe. This is my opinion. I don't think this is what the passage is saying. He is not the authority over the wife in that respect. I believe that no one has authority over the wife and her conscience beside God. That role, that, that role belongs to God and Christ. Only God is sovereign over her conscience as well as his, just as only Christ and no man has supreme authority over the church. So it's similar to Christ's headship, but it's not identical to. The the man is something of the savior in the family, but not identical to the way that Christ is a savior. As a head of the household, the husband is the human agent, ultimately, I believe, responsible to God for the family and Christ the family. You know about the whole, the old adage about authority and responsibility. If you don't, I'll say it again. We have responsibility as leaders and as leaders, we delegate what? Authority. We delegate authority to do jobs in the church. There are many people who have the authority to do many things. They're delegated out. We never delegate what? Responsibility in a military unit or in a corporation. The buck stops where? As Harry Truman said, here. So something goes wrong in, the, in, in this country, Joe Biden gets, he, he, he get, he, they say he's responsible. That, that's kind of silly, you know? But that's the way politics is now, you know? Um, the buck stops at the desk of the head and that's responsibility, not authority. We can delegate authority, but not responsibility. And I think that he's ultimately responsible to Christ for the family. Just as Christ bears responsibility to the father for the church, so the husband bears responsibility for the family and his wife. And his responsibility as, if you will, a savior, is to guide and protect and preserve the family. But he's not savior in the fullest sense like Christ. Nobody ever replaces Christ in that respect. He doesn't supplant him. Christ is still, and I said this this morning, and I think y'all agreed with me, who is really the head of the family? It's not the man. The head of the family is Christ. The church is the model for the wife. Just as the church is the bride of Christ, and we'll talk about that in a moment, the wife is the bride of the husband. Just as the church submits to Christ, so the wife submits or defers to the husband in a similar manner. She depends on him as the guide, the protector, the, de- the deliverer, the preserver. But she never forfeits her independent identity and her conscience that is sovereign before Christ. I think all of this in this context, this first point about mutual submission with a husband taking lead, my opinion about it is this. Both the husband and the wife submit to Christ in verse 21. Each person has unique gifts and responsibilities and they cooperate in the decision making. The wife may defer to some of the strengths of her husband in the marriage. The husband may defer to some of the strengths of his wife in the marriage, and it's a mutual decision-making process, but when the buck stops on the desk of responsibility and a decision has to be made and they cannot agree, then when the husband makes the decision, who is responsible for it? And if he takes the wife's advice and he does what the wife says, then who's responsible? the husband's still responsible for it. Yes, it's my opinion. In all decision-making, regardless of input, it's the final responsibility of the husband. Note in verse 24, it's stating a fact there. It's not so much uh, the force of an imperative, but as Christ is subject to the church, it doesn't say also wives submit, and that is obey in that sense with an imperative. In fact, there is no verb there. The idea is there, submission, but I think it's this mutual deference. It says, but as Christ is subject to the church, so also wives to their husbands and everything, is literally what it says in the Greek. I think this is a statement of ongoing voluntary relationship and not an imperative, and I think it works itself out in different marriages in different ways. It's a voluntary loving relationship based on trust. Bottom line, though, the point is this, the husbands exercising authority are finally responsible for the marriage. And not not everybody may agree with my interpretation of that. And I've kind of explained to you the way our marriage works. How does yours? Secondly, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church in verses 25 through 27. Christ's love for the church, how much did he love the church? How did he demonstrate it? He gave himself up for her, his love, the agape love, He died to redeem her. What was his his purpose? Two-fold purpose. It was to cleanse her for the washing of his word and to sanctify her and set her apart. And his actions accomplished this end state by doing that. The cleansing makes her spotless without wrinkle or any defect. And the sanctification, which first required cleansing, even though it comes second as a verb, it required cleansing. The sanctification results in the church being holy and blameless. So he did all of that to cleanse her and make her holy and blameless, and his ultimate goal was to do what? To present the church in all its glory to himself. As his what? And it doesn't use the word here, but as his what? As his bride. As his wife. You see, it's implied here, but the idea is very clear. And why? because the bride is going to be presented before the Father in eternity, and there's going to be a wedding feast. And we read about it today in Revelation 19. And again, in Revelation 21, there's going to be the marriage of the Lamb when we know who the Lamb is. And who is the bride? The bride is the church. So Christ's love for the church is established. Now, look at the husband's love for his wife, you see. It should model that. He should love her with the same kind of agape love. What does that mean? He ought to be prepared to what? Give himself up for his wife, to die for her. And he should set that godly example for the rest of the family by following Christ. He also should be an agent of cleansing and holiness. Not that, not that he redeems in any way like Christ, but he ought to lead his family in obedience to the cleansing of God's word and sharing the word of God. He ought to be honoring, in terms of holiness, the bonds of holy matrimony. He ought to be committing his family as holy unto the Lord as a priest. And he ought to be teaching them to observe all things whatsoever Christ has commanded him. So he has a role there, you see, in loving his wife that way by being sacrificial, but also leading as Christ did in making his family cleansed and holy. Thirdly, husbands love your wives as you love your own bodies. Well, this is pretty obvious why it should be that way. Husbands ought to love their own bodies because it's a natural principle. Whoever hated their own body? Well, there's some people that do, okay? But a healthy person should not. In fact, if you abuse your body, it's not only a desecration, it's not only damaging to your body, but it violates the temple of God. It trashes God's possession. It's normally human healthy behavior to to love life and care for our bodies but not in a selfish, self-serving way. It's the agape love. So when we love our own selves, we love ourselves with the love of God, with a selfless love. Recognizing that we're created with, with dignity and honor before God, and we have the image of God, and to abuse our body is to desecrate that image. So we should love our own body. And we should acknowledge that it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So there's something holy about the man's body, so we're to love our own bodies for all those reasons but also we're obligated in that relationship to our wives as we love our own bodies. You see, our bodies as husbands are not our own. Who owns our body? We do, but who else owns our body? Those of us who are married. Our spouse, our wife. So we owe it to our spouse to take care of our body and love our body for her benefit, just as her body belongs to the husband and we ought to respect her body as well. And we ought to love in that way. Husbands should love and care for their wives and their bodies as well, because, once again, they have dignity before God, and he has a responsibility in a one-flesh relationship to take care of her body as well. He has a duty to deliver, protect, preserve and to provide for her as savior within the family. Husbands should follow Christ's examples, then, his example. They love their own body, and they love their wife's body, and they take care of both. Just as Christ nourishes and cherishes the church as his bride, so husbands ought to nourish and cherish their bride as Christ does the church. Fourthly, here we come to this mystery. We partake of Christ's mysterious union with his church, verses 30 through 32. This is the third of uh, three great mysteries in uh, the book of Ephesians so far. What was the first one? Chapter one, this great mystery is that his redemptive plan has been fulfilled in Christ. Verse nine. And then we ran into, I think that Joel preached on this in chapter three, there was the the mystery of Christ itself. And that was remember that the gospel is is to be shared by the Gentiles. Now we have another great mystery that's being revealed and it's relationship of Christ and the church. And it's like the relationship between the husband and the wife, which is an exclusive one flesh relationship. That's what's surprising about this. Christ is wedded to the church in a one-flesh church, one flesh relationship, which is permanent. And he then quotes Genesis 2, which was also quoted by Jesus later in the New Covenant, Matthew 9 and Mark, Mark 10. So you see, the church is the bride of Christ. It doesn't say it explicitly here, but is the church the bride of Christ? Well, of course it is. Uh, first of all, who is the bridegroom? He is. John, in the wilderness, speaks about the bridegroom. He's talking about Christ. Jesus himself, when they ask him, why aren't you fasting with the Pharisees? He says, we're not going to fast because my disciples aren't going to fast until the bridegroom goes away. Who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. Jesus speaks to the bridegroom in Matthew 25 when he talks about the bridegroom coming to the wedding feast. That's an allusion to his messianic coming. So he is the bridegroom and we are the church. How do we know this? Two reasons. Because Christ's sacrifice makes it clear. 525 like a husband Christ gave himself up for the church chapter 5:25 if you've got it open there now look at chapter 5 verse 2 what does it say Christ also gave himself up for whom for us you see the equation he gave himself up for the church who is the wife and he gave himself up for us therefore we are that church who is the wife we are the bride of Christ also because of Christ's headship. He is the head of the church, the Savior of the body, in chapter 5, verse 23. The wife for whom he died. We are that church. We are members of Christ's body in a one flesh relationship, verse 30. Therefore, we are wedded to Christ as the church. We are the bride. That's reiterated in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, but it's get, he, there is an example of this given in two of Paul's letters explicitly pointing out that the church is the bride of Christ to the church at Corinth. Second Corinthians eleven twenty-four, he says that the Corinthians are espoused to Christ. He says to the Romans that they are set to be married to the resurrected one in Romans seven. So there's no question, even though the explicit language is not used here in Ephesians five, the bride of Christ is the church. And the husband-wife union is essential in that relationship to the unity of the church. Why? If husbands are loving their wives and vice versa, and they're in unity and they maintain that union in marriage and they're members of the body, this only contributes to the unity of the body. Is that logical? And if we're married to Christ through the church, we are... What's one of Paul's overriding concerns throughout Ephesians? It's the unity of the church. If marriages are in disarray and broken and they're members of the church, does that bring disharmony into the unity of the body? Absolutely. Husbands and wives are members of the same body in the church. So the marital union is integral to the unity and the union of the body of Christ himself. And husbands, here, its talking about husbands, participate in Christ's mysterious union with his church by doing what? By loving their wives. So husbands, what we do in loving our wives goes far beyond just the marital relationship and the family. It affects the whole church. And then finally, we build strong marriages based on two things, love and respect, verse 33. This is the closing twofold principles. There's an imperative here, and then there's just a continuous sub, uh, a subjunctive. The imperative is husbands must do what? They must do something. They must love their wives. It's commanded again. Wives should respect, it's a subjunctive, and revere their husbands. Actually, the word is fear, phobeo. Oh, they should revere. Um, isn't that interesting? Wives are not commanded to love their husbands. The greater responsibility and sacrifice is the responsibility of the husband. Regardless of the wife's attitude, regardless of whether the wife respects her husband or not, the husband is still commanded to do what? To love his wife. And to express it by nourishing, cherishing, delivering, protecting, preserving, and providing for her. This respect is contingent and it's reciprocal. Now, you know the idea here is he's really saying, you know, wives, he doesn't use an imperative, but he really wants wives to respect their husbands. Wives, I think what he's saying here is, wives can only fully respect their husbands if their husbands do what? Love them, yeah. And this is a growing relational process, a trusting process. You see, the more he loves her, the more she can what? Help me here. The more he loves her, the more she can what? Respect him. And the more she respects him, the more he does what? He loves her. Yeah. The more she respects him, the more he loves her. And the more he loves her, the more she respects him. It is a wonderful, reciprocal, integrated relationship. The ideal in a strong marriage, I think, is this. (laughs) Even though the command for the husband is to love and the wife to respect, wives also ought to love their husbands. And husbands ought to do what with their wives? Respect them. The man not only loves, but respects his wife. And the woman not only respects, but loves her husband. And this is a growing relationship. They cooperate in a mutually submissive relationship, I believe, where one is responsible for certain, has authority in the marriage for certain things because of strengths and abilities, skills, and conscience before God. And they submit mutually to one another, but when the rubber hits the road or when the buck lands on the desk of responsibility, the head of the family in terms of his being the source in that respect, the source of deliverance, the source of protection, the source of provision, and the source of love lies with a husband who has the ultimate accountability and responsibility to God for the health, the sanctity, the holiness, and the beauty of the marriage. So where would you say this description that I have given tonight would fit in terms of a complementarian or an egalitarian model? Well, I've kind of examined it, and folks, I frankly have my foot in both camps, okay? If you're a pure complementarian and you come to that position because, you know, that's what you believe the Bible says. I think we can agree to disagree in harmony and unity in the body. If you're a complete egalitarian, same thing. I'll tell you where this leads, though, sometimes. When we push complementarianism too far, too far, and a, a healthy biblical complementarian would not do this. When you push it too far, the husband becomes the what? The boss of the family and the dictator, and the wife will shut up, and the wife can only do certain things based on what the husband says that she can't, is permitted to do. I do not think that is biblical. On the other hand, if you push egalitarianism too far, nobody makes a decision. Everybody has equal, equal authority, but guess what? Nobody assumes responsibility. And that's just as dangerous. And then also, too, you know, you get into this whole business about gender identity and gender roles. And if you push it too far, it begins to bend all those things into a non-biblical perspective. I think there's a golden mean here in between, in my opinion. Uh, And uh, I've described what I think it is. Mutual submission with the husband taking the lead. Anyway, next week, Joel, you're going to be preaching, right? And you're going to preach on godly families and godly parents and children. So stay tuned. And then we have a third one in this block, and then there are two other sermons that deal with the armor of God, and then we're finished with Ephesians. Okay. Joel, will you please come lead us in our closing?
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817 926 1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals. To reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.